We want to welcome you to Fellowship of Huntsville Church. If you are visiting with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. There should be a connection card underneath the seat in front of you. You can fill that out either electronically with the QR code or you can do it with pen and pencil and turn it into the box in the back. This is between the two doors there. And that's where we take offerings as well if you want to give to the church. You can use the card for prayer requests or to inquire about anything here in the church on ministry-wise and so forth. Uh, you're welcome to do that. So um, today is National Green Bean Casserole Day. And so I brought this up in my Sunday school class with the college students, and most of them were not real excited about green bean casserole. So I'm thinking, is this a generational thing? Because when I grew up, everybody loved green bean casserole, right? I see all the older folks, yeah, the kids are no. Anyway, today is the day. So if you didn't get it over Thanksgiving, go home and make it today and, and uh, enjoy it. It's also National Let's Hug Day. I'm not sure what that's about, just so you need to hug somebody today. It's also National Pecan, I'm sorry, sorry, not Pecan, Apple Pie Day. So you need apple pie and a green bean casserole and a big hug, and you'll make your day. Let's get on to uh, scripture reading. John chapter 1. So out of all of the book of John, this is my favorite verse, I think. I, that means it, this, is, this is, everything culminates to, the, to this verse in who Jesus is. CF said he's going to spend four weeks on this, ending on Christmas Eve, right? Isn't Christmas Day out on the Monday, so forth? Well, anyway, on Christmas Eve, he's going to, that'll be his last time on just verse 14, as he talks about all the different aspects of who Jesus is and relating to this verse here. If you would turn to John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love for us, for your word. For the truth that's revealed through your word, and Lord, I pray that that truth will be revealed this morning, that CF will speak your words, Lord, that we'll hear them, that we'll respond, and Lord, that we will move from here to be lights in this world. And we say this in your name, amen. We're now going to dismiss the kids ages three through fourth grade. They're going to go out to this hallway over here in classrooms where they're going to do their thing while we're in here with church, and you can pick them up there uh, when they're done and when we're done. Thank you. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open to the passage of John 1.14. That's our text. We're going through a study of the Gospel of John. And we get to this verse right here, and uh, it, it landed just perfect because we started. It's the first Sunday of December, and there were four Sundays uh, culminating on the uh, uh, four Sundays until Christmas. And so I thought, well, I'll do a little Advent series about the birth of Christ because we're in the Christmas time, but it also gives us a, a better understanding of what this means when the Bible says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the incarnation of Christ. Incarnation means He took on a physical body. He is eternal God and He took on a physical body and dwelt among us. So we're going to look at some 
prophetic passages this morning and some typology that points to the coming of Christ. Because when Christ came, if you will, if you read the Gospels, you'll see in various places where people say, could this be the one that was promised? There was a lot of stuff that had been proclaimed to them and they were looking for the coming Messiah. We look back and we know it was the coming of the Messiah, the promised one of God. And so uh, we're going to take a look at that this morning. So let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, we come before your throne, thanking you, Lord, for this day, thanking you, Lord, for this opportunity that's before us, praying, Lord, for your divine guidance for me as I teach your word, that you would keep me from error, help me to rightly divide your word of truth and explain it clearly and accurately, that your people be able to receive it and embrace it, put it to work in their life to better serve you. For it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. If you were looking at prophetic references of Scripture, probably one of the first references to the coming of Christ or what Christ is going to do is found in the book of Genesis. And if you'll turn to Genesis, the third chapter, this passage comes right after Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden. And God is going to address the various participants in this, uh, in this third chapter, beginning in the 14th verse, 14 and 15, he's going to speak to the serpent, the, the deceiver. Verse 16, he's going to speak to the woman. And then in verse 17, he's going to speak to Adam. And the verse I want to look at is in one where he speaks to the serpent in the 15th verse. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a reference to Christ and what he's going to do. Now, when the Jewish people read this, when Moses wrote this, they wouldn't have much of an understanding of what he was talking about. But as New Testament believers and looking back at the finished work of Christ, we have a complete and full understanding. And if you'll note there, it says between your seed and her seed, singular, talking about an individual in this case, an individual is Christ is what he's talking about, that Christ is surely going to come and there's going to be a culmination. There's going to be something that's going to take place between him and the serpent. And, and we see that worked out in scripture. And what was that? It's the cross. When he came to the cross and he died for our sin on the cross, that is when the head of the serpent was crushed. So this is one of the earliest examples of this in the Bible. In seminary, they told us this passage of scripture is called the Proto-Evangelion because it is the first evangelical reference to the coming of Christ. It's the first to give you a picture of that in the Bible. And as you go through the Bible and understand the fullness of scripture, you can understand completely what he's talking about. Another picture of what's going to take place is in Exodus, the 12th chapter, the story of the Passover. This is a passage dealing with typology and what's going to occur. And if you look in the 12th chapter, uh, we're going to begin in verse one. Exodus 12:1. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, 
saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. What this is a picture of, this is the story of what we call the Passover lamb. And this lamb is given as a sacrifice and its blood is going to be shed. And when they, when they kill this lamb or, or kid, if they took a goat and they kill it, they take the blood and it says they put it on the doorpost, the doorpost to the side of the, of the door. And they, and they were further instructed to take hyssop and to do this with. And hyssop was a common plant that grew in that region. And they would take that, that plant. If you've ever seen the news and seen the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, you'll see those plants growing out of that wall. That is hyssop. It's a very common weed over there, very similar to a, a brush grass or a, a broom grass. And they would take that, and it's a picture of faith because it's common. It's available to everyone there. You take that, you dip it in the blood, and you put it on the, on the doorpost of your house, and then you put it on the lintel. When you look back from a New Testament perspective, that is point right here and point on each side. That is a picture of a cross is what it is, the Lamb of God. But note something else about that lamb. It says that lamb has got to be a male, verse 5, without blemish and a male of the first year. To be without blemish meant without physical blemish. All right? And then typology, typology points to a reality. When the reality comes, you no longer need the typology, okay? So we don't celebrate the feast, and the reason we don't is feasts are fulfilled in the person of Christ. Christ is the one that fulfills it. So just like this lamb was taken, one day there came the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. These lambs covered sin. And those people that applied that blood to the doorpost and the lintel of their house, God passed over. And, and th those that failed to do it, they were judged as a result of it. And so our New Testament Passover is Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians the 5th chapter. And if you'll look down at verse 7, 1 Corinthians 5 and 7. It says this, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may have a new lump since you truly are unleavened for indeed Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. 
And so you see that the Passover is a typology of one that would come, that God was going to send his son into the world as a lamb, and this lamb was going to be slain. You see a reference to the scripture also of the prophet that's going to come. If you'll look in your Bible in Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy the 18th chapter, and we're going to begin in verse 15, Deuteronomy 18, 15. It says, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst for your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the days of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Now, if you'll go and turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 3, you'll see reference made to this when Peter is preaching. Acts chapter 3 and look at verse 22. Acts 3 and 22. Acts 3.22 says, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who followed, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, send him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. The foretold prophet is none other than the person of Jesus Christ, that he was sent into the world. And he is the one we are to listen to. He is the one that we are to hear. When you look further in scripture, if you look back at John, and if you look in John chapter five, in John the fifth chapter, there's a, there's a very interesting statement that is made. John 5 and um, look at uh, verse 45. He says, do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. Well, see, Moses' writings were about Christ. Now, they're veiled. They're, you don't really see it until you look back from the New Testament. But once you get in the New Testament, where we are today, you can look back and you can see that the whole scripture points to Christ. The incarnation of Christ is the most significant event in the Bible outside of his death, burial, and resurrection. His death, burial, and resurrection, his incarnation, his return. Those are three critical events that, that surround around the person of Jesus Christ. And we're celebrating here at Christmas time, we celebrate his incarnation. 
the coming of Christ, coming into the world. And we celebrate that. You look in John 3 and you look at Nicodemus. Nicodemus was trying to understand when is all this taking place? Who is this man? Nicodemus at this point in time in his life was, was pretty convinced of who Christ was. And he came to Christ at night. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, the purpose of the signs was to confirm the person of Jesus Christ. He could make a claim, but when he did the miracles, the miracles would convince the people, this has to be God. No one can do what this man is doing. And Nicodemus was convinced of that, of who he was. At this point, he wasn't fully embracing it, but you're going to see later in Scripture that he does. Very apparent that he becomes a believer in that process. But the Scriptures point to the coming of the Messiah. If you were to look at the, at the Bible and, and say this podium right here is a picture of the cross, you'd have the Old Testament over here and you'd have the New Testament on that side. Everything in the Old Testament looked forward to when Christ would come. When Christ came on that cross, or at least during his ministry and then culminating in the cross and his burial and his resurrection, then on this side of the cross, the picture gets much clearer. All these types, all these symbols, all these writings of Moses, you see Christ in a veiled sense. But when you come to the cross, the veil is taken off and it's like you get a clear view of who he is. It's kind of like if you've ever looked through binoculars and are out of focus, the Old Testament would be the binoculars out of focus. You can get a general understanding that something's there. But then as you start zeroing down, you're moving over here. And as you zero down, then you get a clear picture of who he is uh, and, and all that he's done in the Bible. So it all points forward to him. Look, if you would, again in Genesis and go to the Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is right after Abraham uh, was taking his son Isaac to the altar to offer him up. And in verse 14 of Genesis 22, it says, And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, in blessing, I will bless you and in multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. Now, who is this great nation that's going to come from Abraham? Well, I think very clearly it's the Jewish people because uh, his son, Isaac, is going to give birth and have the 12 sons, and they're going to grow up to be the nation of Israel. But folks, 
This group of people is even bigger than that. This group of people includes all believers. Because look at your next verse. When you move down to it, it says, verse 18, in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Seed being singular means that it is through the line of Abraham that the Messiah came. The incarnated son of God came to live on the earth. Turn, if you will, to Galatians 3. And Galatians 3 gives you an answer to the passage there in Genesis 22. Galatians 3 and look at verse uh, 12. Galatians 3, 12. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And what was the reason for that? That the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so you see in this passage of Scripture, as it's laid out here, it's, it's Jesus Christ that has come and it is through his seed. Read on further. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and deceives as to many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So see, the, the birth of Christ is foretold. He's going to come. He has a mission. He has a purpose to come into the world. And his mission and purpose in coming into the world is to die for sin. You know, liberal theologians will tell you that Jesus is a good example. Other religions will tell you that Jesus is a prophet that Jesus is just one of many prophets that points the way to God, that he provides us an example of how we are to live and what we are to do in life. But Jesus himself said, I've come to give my life a ransom for many. Amen. Jesus said, I've come to die. He said, for this purpose, I must go to Jerusalem. I must go because he's coming to fulfill his role as the incarnated son of God that is going to go to the cross and lay down his life for mankind. And so the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures point forward to the day that he would come. We're in the New Testament right now and we can look back and see how he is everywhere throughout that Old Testament. That it was a, it was a plan that was executed by God. It is his love story to mankind of how he's going to redeem man back to himself. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we talk about the greatest gift ever. Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that could ever be given. Then you can get down, move beyond typology and you go to specific prophecies that relate to the birth of Jesus Christ. 
So to look at this, I want you to turn with me, <coughs> excuse me, to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And this is a very familiar verse that you'll hear a lot of times this time of the year. Isaiah chapter 7, and I want you to look at uh, verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And that's the significance of Christ. When Christ, who is creator God, because we've seen that in the Gospel of John, we've seen it in other places in Scripture, that Christ was creator. We've seen that Christ is sustainer, that everything exists in the world as a result of Christ. And yet Christ comes from heaven to earth and takes on a human body, takes on human nature without sin. So he is the perfect begotten of the Father. He is 100% God, an undiminished deity. He is 100% man without sin. That's why he was born of a virgin. Many times when this passage is read by, by liberal theologians and even a lot of Jews today, they will translate that Hebrew word virgin with a, it's the word Alma. And Alma means a young woman, all right? A young woman. That's just another variation of it. It can mean a virgin, but it can also mean a young woman. And so a lot of times what they'll say is that there was not a virgin birth, that it was just a woman, a young woman that gave birth to a child. But when the Septuagint was written, the Septuagint translated the word Alma with a Greek word Parthenos. And Parthenos in the Greek means virgin is what it means. So it was understood very clearly by the early writers what they were talking about. This passage of scripture is also in the New Testament. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter one and Matthew the first chapter and I'm gonna read uh, verse 23 to you. It's a direct quote from Isaiah 7, 14. It says, behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took him and he took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. And so this is, the, this is the Christmas story right here, the incarnation of Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ, excuse me, Jesus Christ came into the world. This prophecy by Isaiah was written 700 years before the events happened. And so every time they would read Isaiah, they'd come to that passage of scripture and they would say, there's gonna be one coming. It's gonna be the promised one of God. And all these scriptures played in to that. And so at the time of Christ, when he came, Matthew, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, throws it right there on the page in front of us. 
and makes it very clear. This is the one that the Old Testament was speaking about. This is the one that's coming and he's going to be born of a virgin. The significance of the virgin birth is that he had to be without sin. If he came from two human parents, he would carry sin. But what happened is you have, you have Mary and there is no male, human male in relationship with her, but it's the spirit of God that comes on her. Now, after she has Christ, she has other children by natural birth and they're referred to as the brothers of Jesus or more specifically the half brothers of Jesus. But she had uh, other children, contrary to some religions that teach that she perpetually stayed as a virgin, which is not true. Uh, she had other children and it's very clear that she did have these other children. But the first one that she had was a male without blemish and it was the first. You see the parallel back all the way to Exodus chapter 12. All these things that are prophesied talking about what's going to take place, what's going to come. And then when it comes, it becomes very clear this is the one right here. Look, if you will, also at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah, the ninth chapter. This is another passage of Scripture that, th that speaks very strongly to this. Verse 6, Isaiah 9, 6. And you'll see this a lot of time. People have nativity scenes or whatever. You'll see this passage. It says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. See, he's a human child being born. Son speaks of his position of inheritance, his position before God, okay? So he's human and he's God at the same time. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with ju judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, many times when this passage of scripture is read, people will say it's a reference to Hezekiah or another king that was going to come. But no king has ever been referred to as mighty God. Okay? And you see that in verse 6. Secondly, there is no king who has a reign that goes on forever. All right? So it's not talking about a human king. It's talking about a divine king. Well, that was a great puzzle to them. They're saying, who could this be? Who could this person be? And they would search the scriptures and they would try to find out and discover who it is. But you can go to the New Testament. And you can see right there on the pages of scripture. Look in Luke chapter 1. In Luke, the first chapter, and I want you to begin with uh, verse 30, Luke 1 and 30. Luke 1 and 30 says, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great 
and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy that was given all the way back 700 years before his birth. You could go to the book of Micah and in the book of Micah, it tells you the exact town that he'll be born in that he's going to come forth out of Bethlehem is where he's going to come forth from. And so you have prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in scripture pointing forward to this major event that's going to come. And the birth of Christ is the incarnation of God. It is where God takes on human flesh and dwells among men. It is where he becomes Emmanuel, God with us. And when you come into a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, you're in relationship with God and you're in a forever relationship with him. You're brought into union. God is with you all the time. Even at the point of death, God will not leave you. Because when you come to your death, whenever that may be, your death is just merely a passing into a further understanding and realization of who God is. And a believer, when they're on their deathbed, as, they, as their spirit leaves their body and death occurs, they just fully embrace God in a more real sense than they did here on earth. That's why Paul says there is no fear of death. He says there's, no, there's nothing to fear there. It becomes a passageway for us to enter into the presence of God. From the human perspective, death is finality because we're looking at it from the earthly position. But when you look at it from the divine position, death is merely a, 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 a means of transferring us from the physical world into the spiritual world. And at the point of death, the, the person's spirit leaves their body and goes to be in the presence of the Lord. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And see, we can be present with the Lord because of what Christ has done in his incarnation, but more specifically what he has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. Because see, what he does in his death is he dies in our place for our sin, so he takes sin out of the way. And then we receive his righteousness. So when we go before God, we don't go up there as a stumbling, bumbling what we are today. We go up there as a perfected, holy, completely righteous individual that has the same righteousness as God Almighty. And therefore, we're on the same level with him. Why is that? Because God is with us. It's because the presence of God is with us and we go into the presence of God with God. It's God's perfect plan, the perfect gift of salvation that God gives. And that's why we rejoice and we put such a focus on it at Christmas time is to think about what did Christ do? He came, he was born into the world. He is the savior of the world. And so for this Christmas, Reflect upon that. Reflect upon the greatness of Christ and what Christ has done on our behalf and that he came to this earth and was incarnated. Look at our passage in John once again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the father, 
full of grace and truth. And, and those disciples saw that firsthand. But you and I see it through the eyes of faith. We realize that this is the great God that created heavens and earth. And this God came in the form of a human body, took upon himself human flesh without sin and dwelt among us. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him, we receive the forgiveness of God. We're brought back into oneness with God. He is the hope of the world. The greatest gift that could ever be given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we have that through the person of Christ. And that's why we rejoice. Join me as we pray. Father God, we come to you in prayer. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, your goodness, and for your gift. The gift of eternal life through the person of Jesus Christ. We're truly grateful for that, God. And we rejoice in that. And I pray that this Christmas we would reflect upon that and the significance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but also the coming of Christ and what that means when he comes into the world. Father, we thank you for all you've done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.